Please join me now in prayer. Spirit of the living God, laminate our minds and hearts by the word we now hear and ponder. In these gospel words, let us find new life, fresh hope, and renewed courage for witness in our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A New Testament reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 11, beginning with verse 25. The word of the Lord. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. Mundus, Caro, et Diabolus, the three enemies of the soul. They are the three temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness, the kingdoms of the world, the allure of the flesh, and to bow down before the devil. Peter Abelard called these the three great enemies in his exposition as he says, three things there are that tempt us, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's been passed down in the English language through the Book of Common Prayer where the litany cries out from the deceits of the world and the flesh and the devil, good Lord, deliver us. We're going to look at these three enemies of the soul from the letter that James wrote to the early Christians. We're going to read the fourth chapter. I'm going to read the first ten verses. This is out of the 1984 NIV as James, under inspiration of God's Spirit, warns us of the three that would destroy us. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you can't have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you can spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? But He gives us more grace. And that is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you 
up. What do we see here? But we see a call to arms against the Christian's three biggest enemies. First, we see the world. In verse 3, James says, When you ask, you don't receive, because you ask with wrong motives so that you can spend what you want on your pleasures. You see, the world puts us on this quest for earthly pleasure. And to get that, you have to have enough money in order to buy into that kind of lifestyle. And James is saying, I want you to get off that treadmill that you will never find God or salvation on that treadmill. In verse 4, he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is, is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And he's not here saying we should oppose the physical world and other people. He's saying that there is a world system, a set of assumptions about how we do things and what we value and the categories within which we interpret our experience. And he's saying, I want you to be very careful about those because if you, if you buy into the world system of thinking, it will destroy you. It's what Paul says in Romans 12 when he says, stop being conformed to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There is a a way of valuing and interpreting our existence that has always been the case since the very beginning of, 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 of human existence in our fallen state. What are some of the components of this, this world system in which we live? You know, I mean, I could speak from my own experience, uh, the world system in which we live says that I am repressed and self-hating, and all of my friends think that's absolutely hilarious um, because uh, my problem is not that I hate myself. Um, and, you know, for others of you, it might be something different. You know, for me, it's, it's you know, it's the thing where, where the world thinks you're absolutely crazy or foolish or naive for following Christ. That's, that's where you're pushing up against a world system. For me, not having a romantic partner, people think it's insane because we live in, in a culture that says that the pinnacle of human experience and meaning and significance is found in being partnered, in, in having romantic feelings. You know, it's, the, the, it's, it's, it's why every, every other story we tell is about the boy who gets the girl or the girl who gets the boy. And then at the end, they all live. You've read this one. Um, you, it's every romantic comedy. I mean, it's just, it's, it's insane. It's, 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 it's the air we breathe in. And uh, for you, maybe it's that uh, the world system in which you live is telling you, 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 you have a spouse. You have somebody who's, who's promised to be with you to the bitter end. And, and the world might be telling you, you know, you'd be happier if you upgraded to a different spouse, one that would actually treat you like you deserve to be treated and love you and actually feel emotional, romantic attraction to you and shower you with the praise that you deserve. And the funny thing is you actually probably would be happier uh, and yet even the world system that tells us that momentary happiness is what we live for is itself part of this world system that, that, that James is saying uh, we, we need to break free of. Um, you know, the world says your life will be significant if you have a certain size house with a certain kind of car and a certain yard that looks a certain way with a certain quality of furniture and a television of sufficient size. And that means you're going to have rooms in your house that you literally never use. You never walk through. How many of us have decorative dining rooms uh, you know, or decorative living rooms? They're just there because the world system says you're supposed to have one, even though you spend all your time in the back in the kitchen. Uh, you know, it's, 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 and there's a price for this. It means you've got to pay your workers the lowest salary you can get and, and, and sell your goods for the highest price you can get. In the, war, in the ancient world, the poor suffered endless abuse at the hands of the rich, and we're going to get to that, I think, next week or the week after, all because of this world system that ties validation to material success. And James is saying friendship with that world is enmity or warfare 
with God. It's one of our biggest enemies is the world. But he doesn't stop there because he also zeroes in on the flesh. The battle with the flesh is the battle with that enemy within. And James locates the origin of of so much of our struggle uh, and so much of our failings, not from external temptations out there or the world telling us things should be a certain way, but, but, but that enemy within, that voice in my own heart. It's in verse 1. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, it's because those people are bad. No, 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 no. What causes fights and quarrels among you? He says, don't they flow from the desires that battle within you? Uh, the evil desire in my own heart. So much of my sin flows not from what's out there, but from what's in here, what the Westminster Confession of Faith in, in chapter 6 refers to as original sin, which is properly sin. It's not it's different from actual sins. It's that fallen condition, that corrupt inner self. Uh, and, and, and it's not just, you know, it's, it's what, you know, theologians of a different era called concupiscence. And concupiscence, contrary to popular belief, is not just sexual temptation. It's the temptation for anything that God uh, doesn't want us to have or the over-desire for a good thing even. Uh, St. Augustine, back in the 4th century, uh, is his illustration of concupiscence was his own uh, uh, over-desire of pears. I mean the fruit, like not an apple, but the other one that you want less. And, uh, and I'm not judging him. Understand, I have had my struggles and he has his bowl of pears. But, uh, you know, I want him to hear, now, St. Augustine, Aurelius, we are not judging you, and your over-desire for pears, which you are mortifying and, and, and repressing properly and avoiding pear stores and things like that, you know, your over-desire for pears is, is not something that in any way hinders you from full fellowship and communion with the Church of Jesus Christ, and your lust for pears does not a priori exclude you from leadership or having a valid theological contribution. Just want you to know that. But this over-desire, drawing inside of himself, he felt like he just couldn't walk by a pair without grabbing it and putting his mouth into it. And he felt that compulsion, that, that evil desire within him for something that seems so naive and so innocent. Um, but Augustine understood that his biggest battle in many ways was with the battle in his own heart. Uh, the, the, the battle for discontent, the yearnings and longings for things that that that, that for wanting it to be a different way and not having that contentment. Uh, it's the struggle with indwelling sin or the flesh. And it's not like you can just turn off the desires of your heart like a switch. You know, Indwelling sin is something that, that, that necessarily uh, doesn't go away, even as we try to, to gain mastery over it. Uh, John Calvin in the 16th century said, sin must remain in you as a Christian but you must not let it rule over you. Uh, it doesn't go away. It's a part of our story. We all have the sinful flesh, sinful nature, indwelling sin. It's the world, yes, but it's also the battle with the flesh. And that means that if I, as a Christian, am going to walk faithfully with my Savior Jesus, then I have to be constantly on guard. Uh, because when somebody says something that I find offensive or hurtful, or ignorant, or wrong, or just beyond over-the-top foolishness, you know, what's my temptation? It's going to be to do one of two things. It's either going to be get defensive and say, no, it's not that way, and not really listen and not hear and not actively listen to make sure, hey, what I'm hearing you say is this, is that not right? Am I hearing properly? You know, to get defensive and shut down, or to go on the attack and to pounce on them like a kitten on a piece of tuna. You know, and, and verbally, I can do that. You know, it's, it's my, my brain 
has a rapid processor and a very large vocabulary and a high level of creativity. And I know how to give a verbal smackdown. I know how to utterly destroy someone with my words and to do so with impunity and make them look like they're about a half inch tall. And I have to constantly be on guard against that. And I constantly know that that's, in, that's indwelling sin. That's the flesh. That's the quarrels and the arguments flowing from the desires within me, my desire to vindicate myself or to show myself right and uh, ultimately a desire to rescue myself. And, and I have to be on guard against that. And I have to say, no, Lord Jesus is this the most loving thing for me to do? Because this is flowing up within me and it's ugly and it's dark and it's evil and it's not grounded in your gospel. Lord, help me instead to respond to this brother with love and kindness and grace and all the things that don't flow naturally from my heart. It's the battle with the world and it's the battle with the flesh. And yet I mentioned we have a third enemy and it's the one that we never, ever, ever talk about. As Presbyterians, we know that the minute we talk about this third battle, this third enemy, uh, we will look unsophisticated and unintelligent and people will roll their eyes because it's sort of like talking about the Easter bunny to them, except it's a bad Easter bunny, a bad bunny. Uh, It's perhaps the most powerful enemy of all, though, because it's the one that we ignore. It's the battle with the world. It's the battle with the flesh, and it's the battle with the, ha <laughs> I made you say it. Uh, <laughs> James says in verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us very much about the devil. Uh, the Bible tells us that there are spiritual intelligences out there that we cannot see and that we don't know very much about. It tells us that some of those spiritual intelligences are aligned with God and uh, we usually call them angels or messengers in Greek from God. And there are other ones that are in opposition to God and in opposition to the gospel. They are the ones that fell from grace and uh, turned against God himself. And, uh, and we don't know much about them. The Bible doesn't say that, that the devil has horns or a tail or a red suit. He certainly does not rule over hell. He doesn't get to be sovereign anywhere. Um, but uh, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that the devil is the one who tempted Jesus during his, year, his, his, his days of fasting in the desert. Um, St. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, be of sober spirit and be on the alert. In other words, be on your guard. So we're supposed to be aware of this battle. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Ephesians 2 Paul writes that the spirit of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In 2 Corinthians 4, St. Paul says that Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. The Bible says that even allowing anger to fester in your heart, in the workplace, or, or in your church, or in your family, or with your spouse, that that is opening a door to demonic influence in your life, in your family, in your children, in your spouse, in yourself, in your church. He says in Ephesians 4, St. Paul, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil a foothold. That's a a, a triplicate repetition, saying the same thing three times in repetition, altering it each time. You know, in your anger, don't sin. Don't stay angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil a foothold. They're linked. Jesus tells us to pray for deliverance from the evil one in the Lord's Prayer. It's a personal evil, not evil out there, but, but the one who is evil. And verse 7 here, James says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And so what does it look like to resist the devil? 
to resist something or someone means to stand in opposition against them. Uh, to understand what that looks like, you need to understand a little bit about uh, uh, the, the, the particular uh, uh, strategies of these spiritual enemies. Um, there are two things in particular the devil is known for. Uh, one is making you question the goodness of God's will, and second is he is the accuser and accuses you of your sin. The first of these uh, uh, is what we see from the very beginning. Jesus said, called, called the devil the father of all lies. Uh, Revelation calls him that serpent, the devil, who from the very beginning was deceiving. He's the one who in the garden went up to our first parents and asked, you know, needled them about the goodness of God's law. God had said, you can eat all of these trees fruit, but not the one in the middle. And so he starts questioning the goodness of God. Well, did God really say that? Did he say you couldn't have any of the fruit of any of these trees? Well, God obviously doesn't want you to have something that's good for you. He's questioning the goodness of God's restrictions on us, the, 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 the goodness of God's word, saying he's that voice who's saying the Bible couldn't possibly mean that. It wouldn't be fair of God to do that. That's the voice of Satan. Uh, the devil is first and foremost a liar and a deceiver who makes you question whether God is really good when he tells you what to do. But the other thing he does is he is the accuser. That's what his name literally means. And in the book of Revelation, he is referred to as the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before God night and day. Um, he's the one who points out your faults and tells you that God could never love you. God could never forgive you. God could never accept you. If people knew what you think about, they would know that you're not really a Christian. No Christian would say the things that you've said. No Christian would be tempted with the temptations with which you are tempted. Uh, you know, it's that voice saying the gospel is true for everybody except you. Not you. You're the exception. Your sin is worse. You're the unforgivable one. You're the ugly, evil monster. You see what he's doing? Two different strategies. One is to trip you into sin by telling you God couldn't possibly mean that. And and then when you fall into sin, he's the one telling you, look at you, big shameful sinner. God must dis be disgusted at you. He wants to trip you into the sin and keep you in it by keeping you so loaded down with shame that it keeps you from coming to the grace of the gospel. Tim Keller says Satan doesn't control us with fang marks on the flesh, but with lies in the heart. The lies that trip us up and then leave us so ashamed that we cannot fall into the Father's loving and gracious embrace. James says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. These are the Christian's three big enemies. The enemies of your soul, the world, and the flesh, and the devil. And yet we see also in this passage the great antidote in the great reversal of the world's values because here we see the one uniquely Christian value of humility. Every culture and every religion values fidelity to your spouse, values telling the truth, values not murdering people, values honoring the gods, whoever or whatever they may be. But only Christianity lays down humility as the most foundational characteristic of the Christian's posture toward God. Humble yourselves in verse 10, James writes. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. He's saying it's the opposite of the, of the world system. The way up is actually down. To humble yourself. What's that mean? It means to put yourself beneath someone. It's, it's like saying, Lord Jesus, I'm not the boss of myself. 
I'm not my own Lord. I'm not my own Savior. I'm not the one who can restore my soul or secure my future or bring me blessing. I am powerless and I am weak and my heart is desperately wicked and I can't even understand it myself. I can't tell up from down some days. I know myself to be a sinner and yet you, Lord, are the one who has loved me and you are the one who called me and you are the one who has chosen me and you are the one who will bless me because you are the one who is smiling upon me right now just as I am because you are the one who rescued me. You are my God and you are my Savior and there is no other and I therefore willingly and gladly put myself before you under you, Lord. Do with me as you want. I do it willingly because I know, Lord, that your heart is filled with love and compassion for me. Humble yourself before God is to stand before Him with arms outstretched, palms open, with only the empty hands of faith, ready to take from Him or receive from Him whatever He thinks is best. Humility doesn't demand of God things that He hasn't promised. Humility prays and asks of God, Lord, give me whatever I would ask if I knew what You, Lord, know to be true. You see, when you're humbling yourself before God, you're approaching God with with a deep realization of, of my own sin and my own neediness before him. Uh, I'm not bargaining with God if I'm humble. I'm not trying to get God to do what I want him to do. I'm, I'm not trying to get leverage over him to accomplish something that, that's really going to make me happy, which is my real God. If I'm humbling myself before my Savior, I'm not thinking of myself more highly than I ought. Um, the Puritan Richard Baxter said, the very design of the gospel is to abase us. The work of grace, because it says that we're that bad that our Savior had to die, and yet he loves us enough that he did so willingly. It begins with humility, not as an ornament of Christian faith, but as an essential part of being a new creature. Uh, Baxter says it's a contradiction in terms to be a Christian and yet not be humble. And yet, friends, this cuts two ways. Because humility before God means I'm swallowing my pride and my need to be in control, and my desire to be respected and accomplished. But humility also means realizing that the world is not on my shoulders. I don't have to take myself so seriously. Humility means I don't have to get results because that's God's responsibility. Humility means I don't have to perform. Humility means I don't have to be successful anymore. Humility means I don't have to make great accomplishments because humility means I'm free from that burden. Some of you think humility means groveling and self-hatred, but that's not humility. That's having all your focus still on yourself and you're mad at yourself because you didn't perform enough. That's failed pride, not humility. I was just reading uh, a couple weeks ago uh, the 17th century Dutch reformer Wilhelmus of Brockel making this exact point that what we sometimes think of as humility is actually failed pride. Uh, Humility is saying with a liberated joy that I'm just a servant and a failed servant at that, but I'm a forgiven one. And so I don't have to accomplish anything. I don't have to be successful. I don't have to make a great name for myself. I'm free from that. I am what I am, and I'm in the embrace of my God, and I can own that because real biblical gospel-driven humility is the opposite of self-loathing. Real humility is incredibly liberating because it's honest about who we are and our failures and our limitations, and we don't have to hide it anymore. We can be honest about the fact that the world is not on your shoulders anymore. So what does it look like? Um, I remember one pastor I had back in Virginia. He would, uh, he would always get a seminary intern about every year. 
And, uh, and he'd always sit down with the seminary intern and say, what, what experiences do you want to have to help you grow into the pastor you want to be someday? And they'd always say, well, you know, I'd really like to teach and I'd really like to preach. I'd really like to lead worship. And I'd really like to have people that I can teach theology to. And it's all this stuff where, you know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the guy with the answers. And, uh, and so he'd say, well, let me pray about this and get back to you with some, some things I want you to focus on. Call him up the next day or two. Hey, got, I got a job for you, what I want you to do. I think this is it. Um, Mrs. Lewiston down the street had some water damage to her dining room ceiling uh, the other week, and the damage is repaired, but the whole thing needs painting. I want you to go down to Sherwin-Williams. We got an account there. Get some supplies. Get some ceiling white paint. Um, uh, it's the stuff with the primer already in it. And uh, I want you to go down and, and paint her dining room ceiling. Be sure to put down a drop cloth and uh, make sure it's cleaner when you leave than when you get there. And then he'd listen. Two things. One, did it get done? And was there a single word of negativity or complaining? And that would tell him whether this seminary intern is even worth investing in. Because humility is self-forgetfulness. Humility is saying it's not all about me needing to be the guy with all the answers in front of everybody. Um, Humility is actually beautiful. Um, I can't stress strongly enough that humbling yourself before the Lord is a heart issue. It's something you offer to your best friend Jesus because he loves you. Uh, you can do humble things all the time with a heart, with a heart posture that's not, not humble. Um, and humility is not being a doormat, you know, just doing whatever everybody else wants you to do. That's people-pleasing. That's living for man. That's still the focus on yourself and your need to be liked. It's not self-forgetfulness. Uh, Tim Keller says it this way. He says, God is not after superficial outward tinkering, but instead a deep-rooted, life-altering change that takes place on the inside that's so much more beautiful than its counterfeit, which is people-pleasing. He says this is a call to find true rest in the blessing of self-forgetfulness. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. It's a reversal of the ways of the world by saying that the way up is actually down. Now, why is it so hard? It's hard because we have this internal need to validate ourselves, um, to be somebody, to be successful. And, uh, and that's, that's a hard drive towards self-salvation, self-rescue. Self, uh, uh, um, I remember once when I was a brand new pastor, 15 years ago uh, this summer, no, 16, 16 years ago this summer, um, uh, my, one of my first jobs was to um, get on the building and grounds team, which was, uh, it was one of our older style committees. You know, it wasn't a ministry team to get stuff done. It was more like a committee that functioned more as a gatekeeper. There were people on it who wanted to make sure that young whippersnappers didn't mess up the building too bad. And I was the young whippersnapper. And uh, I remember our youth group, they were, they were in the same room they're in now, only now it's a really cool room. Um, anybody remember what it used to look like? Some of you old timers. Oh man, it was bad. Before that, it was even worse. And, uh, I remember it was just this, you know, it's kind of thing where the kid gets to be about 12 years old, gets acne on his face, starts to smell, you throw them all down in the basement. It was terrible, terrible thing, statement as a, as a church. And, and I, so I wanted to invest in the youth room some, and, and that meant painting. And uh, the committee was just intransigent. They didn't, we, we are not going, we, we have to approve the paint colors. It'll be off-white, um, maybe a, a beige. Uh, and the kids wanted um, 
orange and blue. And so, uh, and so I, I tried, and I got frustrated, and I finally told him, well, you know, this is my job, and I can always go to the session and just go over your heads and get the session's approval to paint. And they got really quiet. Really, really quiet. And the next day got a phone call from Ted Spade. Yeah, Greg. Well, what you said there, um, it might have been a little over the top. I spent the rest of the next two days just calling everybody who was in that room and asking them to forgive me because I had done a power play. I hadn't, patient, I hadn't been patient with them, hadn't been respectful. Uh, understand, I understand the pace that they were going at. I was, I was trying to get them from park into first gear, and I just threatened to take it into fifth. And, uh, and having to go and ask all these people's forgiveness, um, you know, that's, uh, that was humbling. That was hard. Because I felt that they were wrong too. And, uh, and sometimes you just have to humble yourself and ask forgiveness even when you think that somebody else is more wrong than you are. So how does the gospel make this possible? Because God in this passage promises the only thing that can make this possible. He promises more grace the big picture. God has already given us grace. We're already in a state of grace. That need to validate myself, that's, that's already off the table because of what Jesus has accomplished by making me part of God's family. And yet in verse 6, on top of all of that grace, he says, but God gives us even more grace. And that's what we need, grace to know that we're in his family, grace to know that we can trust him with our lives. And on top of that, he promises future grace, like Jesus is saying to you right now, listen, I know this is really hard, but if you trust me with this and humble yourself with this and rely on me and don't take this into your own hands, I promise you, I will bring you to a place of exaltation. If you humble yourself now, I will lift you up. If you collapse into my arms of grace now and yield your heart to mine, I will exalt you. It's the same thing Peter said in 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves there under the mighty hand of God and he he will exalt you. It's a, a conditional promise. If you humble yourself before me, I will lift you up. We see it again in verse 8. Come near to God and he will come near to you. And in verse 7, submit yourselves to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's, that's an intentional order of yielding to God, collapsing into his gracious, strong, beautiful arms and then pushing back on the devil's angling and, and, and questioning of God's goodness and, and questioning of, of the grace of God toward you. Uh, and then comes this promise that the devil is going to flee before you like a vanquished and defeated enemy that has been crushed on the field of battle. It is the promise of Jesus Christ through his brother James that if you humble yourself, God will exalt you. If you rely on him and trust in him, he will bring you glory if not in this life, in the age to come. And if you resist the devil, he is going to run as far and as fast as he can from you because God will be with you. It's like the manna in the, in the wilderness where, where, you know, in the, in the Old Testament, as they went through the wilderness, probably some kind of, of fungus that was edible. Uh, but every day God would say, I'll give you the manna for just one day and don't collect any more than you need. Just take what you need. And because he was 
training us, even then as his people, to rely on him for God's grace today and to trust him tomorrow that he's going to give grace tomorrow. And people who took like two days worth of manna, what happened to it? It rotted. Uh, except before the Sabbath when you could take two days worth and it wouldn't rot then. Uh, it, was, it was training us to live by faith in future grace, trusting that, 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 that you know, I've, I've walked into the room so many times where I'm in conflict with somebody and I do not want to see them. I don't want to be in a room with them. I want them to just swivel up and go away and, and, and quit making my life miserable. And, and I know what it's like to have to walk into a room with a mediator and just trust God saying, God, I don't know if I'm still going to be on staff in this church at the end of this conversation. I don't know if I'm going to just be utterly torn apart in this. I don't know what it's going to look like, Lord. But I'm trusting that you're calling me to humble myself now. And so I'm going to go into that room and I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to trust you, Lord. And you're going to have to redeem it, Lord, because you are my God and you are my Savior and you are my King. And a King's job is to defend his people. Humble yourself. And he says, I will lift you up. There's no qualification. It's an absolute promise. God is saying, trust me now and I will, I, I, I will validate you. You don't need to validate yourself. If you trust me with this, I will absolutely bless you. I will show myself to you. I will work in your heart. I will make your life bear fruit. And it may not be the fruit that you think or that you want, but I will make you rise as one before me who has been blessed. And there's no bigger blessing that God could give than to draw near to us. Come near to God. God will come near to you. Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because it's the Lord who did this, who knows a thing or two about humbling himself, as he humbled himself all the way to the cross, for your sake, because he loves you. Ray Cortis, a pastor in Florida, I know. And by that, I mean I've shaken hands with him a couple times. And he sent me an encouraging Facebook post. Um, he tells a story about a really crucial time in his life as a pastor. He says this, he says, an epic moment was when our eldest child was in second grade. He kept telling us that his back hurt. My back hurts. Dad, my back hurts. I remember the day when it finally dawned on me. We were coming home from a Tampa Bay Buccaneers game, and my son kept complaining, and so we took him to the pediatrician, and yeah, um, I'm a little concerned about this. And so they sent him to an orthopedist. The orthopedic guy says, ooh, I don't know. And so they sent him to a radiologist. And the radiologist says, well, I'm, I'm a little concerned. And then they sent you to the oncologist. And the oncologist says, this doesn't look good. Every appointment was worse news, worse news than the last one. And then the oncologist sent us out of town to a pediatric oncologist, he says. The pediatric oncologist says, your son has a tumor in his spinal column. The tumor is probably benign, but it's already compromising his spinal column. Now he's got scoliosis. His back is all twisted around. He's trying to avoid pain. This is serious, and we're going to have to operate, and we're going to have to operate right away. It was a parent's nightmare. 
He says, I'll never forget taking our son in for surgery, talking to him about the goodness of God. The operation lasted six and a half hours. When we went to get our son in the recovery room, he was ashen and gray. It looked like he was dead. The next week in the hospital, he's in a full body cast. It was hell. He was in so much pain. They put him in a room with a child who almost died three times that week. It was horrific. It was horrible. It was worse than we ever could have imagined. And then finally, it was over and we headed for home. Grandparents had flown down from Chicago. They, they, they bought him a new bike. His sisters had done all this chalk all over the driveway. The other kids in his class had, had welcome banners on, in stakes in the front yard. Uh, the sense of relief in our family was palpable. We had dodged this horrible bullet and, and everything was going to be good again. I mean, yeah, he's still in a full body cast, but he's on the road to recovery and this nightmare is finally over. And as I'm literally grilling steaks outside, my wife says, the doctor, the surgeon, is on the phone. Says, I go into the house, pick up the phone. The surgeon says, we didn't get all of it. We have to do it all over again. Literally, I hear outside, the laughter and the relief and the joy of hell being behind us. I wanted, I wasn't happy with the surgeon, he says, but I was a lot less happy right now with God. So I found the only place in the house where I could be away from you. And I remember saying, all right, God, all right, we know what the deal is here. I know that I'm a fraud and I know I'm the pastor of a church and I'm a fraud. You know it and I know it and you've got business to do with me. You're striking at me because you've got to knock me down because you've got to get my attention because you've got to change my life. But leave my son out of it. What's my son done? I will stand between my son and you. You may not do this to my boy. He says, you know, at that moment, something happened. I think it was the first time I ever talked to God like he was real. Like you would get angry at another person. I was angry with God. I was furious with God. And I said, not going to happen. Not going to happen to my boy. And in the midst of my tears, God said, and at this point, Presbyterians will ask, was it audible? You know, God spoke to me. And God said, you're such a twit. You think you need to stand between me and your boy? I stand between you and your child. You try hard as a dad, but you aren't much. I'm a dad to these kids, and I love your boy more than you love your boy on the best day of your life. And I want to tell you something, God said. I got that boy. I've got that boy. That boy belongs to me, and I will do good to that boy because that's what I do for my children. Ray says the most amazing thing happened in that moment, in that room, in that prayer, I believed. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I believed God, whatever He says, whatever He intends, whatever His will is, I had trust. And it was horrible. I had to bring my son back into the operating room. 
I had to lay down on my son and pin him to the table for them to put him to sleep because he knew everything that was coming. He had just lived it all and he was getting ready to live it all again and it was exponentially worse than the first time. But as a family, we experienced the goodness of our God and God brought us through it in a beautiful way. The world says you shouldn't have to suffer. The flesh says, I need to have it my way. The devil says, God does not love you. You would not suffer if God loved you. And yet the gospel says that you have a Father in heaven. That your sins are atoned for. That He has your back. And on the worst day of your life, you can rise up and give Him thanks because He is your God. He will fight your battles for you. And He promises, if you will humble yourself and trust Me with this, I will exalt you and lift you up to a place of glory and beauty and joy and hope and praise. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for your faithfulness and your love and your compassion to us, your people. Uh, We pray, Father, that as we consecrate these elements on this table to you, this bread and this cup, that you would minister the gospel to us, Lord, grow our faith, deliver us from the evil one, help us to mortify our sinful flesh, And to overcome the world, Lord. We can only do it by the power of your spirit upon us. We pray now for that. In the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.